Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Root Work and Astromatics edition of New Books and Science Fiction. We're part of the New Books Network of Podcasts, where you can get insight into books on all sorts of topics from the authors themselves. My guest today is Rivers Solomon, whose debut novel, An Unkindness of Ghosts, has appeared on many best-of-the-year lists and award shortlists, including the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, the winner of which will be announced between the time of this recording and the release of the podcast. An Unkindness of Ghosts was also a finalist for the 2018 Locus Award for First Novel, a Lambda Literary Award, and it also made The Guardian's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy Books of 2017. And there are actually quite a few other awards I could mention, but in the interest of time, I will proceed and tell you that An Unkindness of Ghosts is about a young woman trying to figure out why her mother apparently killed herself shortly after giving birth to her 25 years ago. But it's also a powerful story about oppression, racism, gender nonconformity, and the role of trauma in society and people's lives, which gives us a lot to discuss. And I am delighted to have River Solomon on the line with me now from their home in Cambridge, England. Welcome to the show. Yay, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. You mentioned before we started that it's a little overcast in Cambridge, and it's a little overcast in New York City this morning, too. So I I feel a connection, even though there's a five-hour time difference. (laughs) Yes, yes. Now, I think um, everybody the world over has been having various um, weather troubles, so we can all sort of bond over that no matter where we are on the globe. Yes, yes. And at least we're having rainy weather as opposed to some of the really horrific things happening with uh, the overheating and the and the fires. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's jump from Earth to outer space and dive into <laughs> An Unkindness of Ghosts, uh, which is set on a vast spaceship called Matilda. And it's what's often called in science fiction a generation starship because people have lived and died on it for generations. And it's really as complex as any planet. It has social castes and languages that have actually evolved so much over time that people who live on different floors don't always even understand each other. And at one point you describe it as a ship divided by metal, language, and armed guards. Can you describe Matilda for our listeners and why you chose it as the setting of your story? Uh, Yes, yes, absolutely. So Matilda first came to me when I was reading about the last slave ship to come to the Americas, um, and that ship was called the Clotilde. Um, And so I thought of, I originally thought of something based off of that, and I the name Matilda came to me. Um, and as I was working out the ship, um, it's obviously it's set in space, so it's going to have 
really advanced technology compared to what we've to what we associate with the time period of the last slave ship. Um, but I wanted to keep that old feeling and aesthetic somehow. And I really struggled with how to do that and how to, to bring that feeling there, um, even though we would be de dealing with some new technology. So um, that meant lots of, uh, lots of looking at photographs of old ships. Um, I, did kind of get inspired by a sort of old submarines, uh, lots of lots of different things that I wanted to 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 take from. And the the submarines ended up kind of sticking with me the most because something about the claustrophobia there and the really tight spaces and the way that sort of the rusting metal looked in old photographs that I looked at really spoke to me as something that felt a bit old but um, could 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 exist in a future technology but also really captured the the feelings of how some might have felt um, enslaved people in a slave ship so that was kind of where the evolution of that of the of Matilda came from um, so yeah that's just to start, uh, it didn't really come to me all at once. There was lots of it that came over time. There was lots of it that changed. Some of it only exists purely because um, I needed it for practical reasons. Uh, I have notebooks and notebooks filled with my terrible drawings of what it might look like and exactly how it was designed. And I think the last piece of Matilda came together uh, around the concept in the book of the field decks, which is where the low deckers uh, in the book work. And it all revolves around a kind of what they call a baby sun or a miniature sun, which is a, a large fusion generator. So once I had that in mind, the ship kind of all came together. And um, it's like, like a lot of generation ships, I'm not the first to do it. It's divided by class segregated heavily um, and as a tool of control the the lower deckers are kept separate from each other so that they can't radicalize and um, revolutionize and that's part of why they can't communicate with language to sort of bring it back to that so so yeah that's just a few things I could talk about Matilda endlessly though so let me know if I've missed anything well, it's understandable that you could do that because it really does feel like a world and worlds are very complicated and you've done an amazing job of of creating something that is complicated and it's both a ship as you've described and very much feels like what I can imagine a slave ship would have been like to some extent, but also it feels like a plantation where mm -hmm. crops are actively grown and the lower deckers who are the black and brown people on Matilda are responsible for doing the harvests and they really are viewed as chattel to be used, abused, even killed with impunity. They live in poverty and and one remarkable thing that I wasn't fully conscious of but when you said you know you were inspired by submarines I didn't realize for a while that they don't ever see the stars because there are no windows except 
for those who are on the upper decks and even you know the most elite of them only have access to actually see and be reminded of the wider universe around them it really i mean it's a they considering the indignity they experience it's i suppose a smaller one that they don't have a window but it's sort of a remarkable detail and adds to that feeling i think of claustrophobia oh no absolutely and something that comes to mind to me regarding that is that um the this one sort of experiment done and i can't remember the specifics um hopefully i can google it later and then if you i can i can send it to you later but where kids um in different neighborhoods were sort of told to draw a map of their their world basically and a lot of kids and sort of um black ghettoized urban areas were more likely to just draw a few blocks or something and then kids from more fluent areas were drew sort of much more vast worlds that were open and accessible to them so it makes me think of that a little bit too absolutely you go to great pains to document the violence that the system as a whole and also individuals like the guards and upper deckers in general and even the monarch himself inflict on the lower deckers but I note that it's really not just about the violence itself that you're interested in. You want to reveal the effects of the violence, the enduring trauma, the generational trauma. Yes, absolutely. I think in general, the dealing with violence in literature and portrayals of violence and the after effects is something really difficult and something I really tangled with to get sort of the right balance of showing the reality and um, but not sort of fetishizing that violence or using it as a, a to- the only sort of tool of drama and um, tension in the book. Um, I'm still not completely sure that I did it right, but something that is really important to me uh, is is the fact that we live in a world right now, I'm not talking about Matilda, but in our world right now where people are sort of completely, they are traumatized and they're also still being re-traumatized constantly. We live in a world where if you are a target of violence, it's kind of unending and you still have to get up and, you know, live your life go to the grocery store, go to work, or in many cases, not do those things because it's too much. And i that's the thing that really interests me is how do we go on in a world that really doesn't feel worth going on in a lot of the time? And how does how does how do you have sort of hope when it's not just you and your individual life, but it's all of your friends and family and it's your parents and your grandparents and their parents, you know, back and so forth. And it really does it really does seem like you're trapped. And that's another thing that goes back to, you know, deciding the setting to be on Matilda and in the spaceship is there is no sort of outside of that except for the vacuum, you know, and talking about all of those issues, I don't pretend to have sort of come up with any answers, but it's something that really weighs on me um, every day. And I 
it's something that it that interests me beyond just this book, beyond an unkindness of ghosts. Um, um, as as a black person and as you know, as a traumatized person and as a person who's alive in this world and you know I was I was the kind of child who every night I watched the news I used to cry I was very very sensitive and I just did even as young as 10 I was just I didn't understand how people just went on in it and so I think it's no surprise that my first book that that's kind of an essential question of the novels. Many of your characters exhibit a real resilience in the face of that trauma. And exactly as you've said, they seem to balance both. They endure these incredible indignities and yet are also constantly drawing on something from within that they can latch onto to find their own sense of dignity and their own sense of power. And I think it's remarkable how you weave those two things together simultaneously. Absolutely. Thank you. I think for me, I was trying to look at my own life and the lives of everyone around me and how we choose to go on and how people all over the world have survived. And how I chose to represent that and unkindness is you know, through things like stories and fables that get passed down and how we draw from those um, and other sort of artistic traditions. Like um, music doesn't come up very often in unkindness, but that's an example of one of those things that's also uh, is alive in those legacies of survival um, and sort of what cultural artifacts that we can hang on to and draw from. Um but also I think, you know, there's a lot of a lot of the characters in my book are fiercely independent people, but I don't think anything that's achieved in the book by any of them could have been done without them drawing on each other and coming together. So I think that's really important too. Let's talk about Aster for a little bit. She's she's really the main hero of the book. Although there are many heroes, actually, but she's the focus is is largely on her, and she's brilliant. She makes medicines from plants that she grows herself in a special place called the botanarium. She often has trouble communicating because she doesn't always grasp people's expressions or their intentions. And yet at the same time, she's completely fearless when it comes to speaking her mind. And I found that she was constantly defying expectations, and not just of the characters around her, but even maybe your readers, because for me, I was constantly thinking, drawing on my own experience, maybe as someone who is more easily frightened, that I... (laughs) I would think, okay, she's going to be compliant now. She has to be compliant now because, you know, the monarch is is threatening her or whoever, and it's way too dangerous to speak up, and she will do just the opposite. She will explode in a completely eloquent burst of words and defend her dignity, defend what's right. So she's really a remarkable character and fascinating to watch. And I should also say she's gender nonconforming. So maybe you could just tell me a little bit about her and her development as a character. Mm-hmm. So 
Oh gosh, why do I start with Aster? I love her so much. Um, she's, you know, I think the thing that you said sort of at the beginning about her often having trouble communicating or understanding everything around her, but then her ability to be completely fearless are actually really, really connected. And it's sort of one of the sort of positive sides of her of her communication difficulties sometimes is that she doesn't always have a filter and that's because, and that's, and that's a bravery. And I think she could have tried to, to, to tamp that down over the years, but she's made a deliberate choice not to do that. Um, you know, uh, because in those times, I mean, I think I, I totally, I'm with you. Like sometimes I was like, shut up, Asta, shut up, you know, be quiet, calm down, just let it go, let it go. Um, and I have also sometimes said that to myself in real life, and I know many others who have, and it, it isn't always successful. So, uh, but I, I think that's something that she's very deliberately cultivated in herself. I think that as a child, because of her differences, um, which one could interpret as autism, I think that that's what was in my mind as I was writing it, is that Astor's autistic. And for those reasons, she was sort of looked down on as a child and made fun of a bit um, and constantly misunderstood by others. And she chose to let that be a sort of fuel for her to, uh, to be heard, you know, um, and not silent. And I think that that's something really beautiful about her. And yeah, I do. I do think that she's really brave and fearless. I think it's because of her particular background Sometimes maybe she is, she's, um, has a bit of a death wish. I don't know if I would stand by that if I, you know, if we were to, to do this interview tomorrow, if I would say that again, but it could, it could come off as a kind of recklessness, uh, that sometimes people have when you're already on death's door anyway, it seems like every day of your life. So, you know, at least get the last word in, um, but yeah, you know that Aster is. I think Aster was the most difficult part for me to to become fully realized out of all the characters in the book. Actually, um, she's been very different at different points. Uh, but I think when I, as I wrote, and uh, there were points where I finally sort of really, really got her, and then I had to, when I finished the book, I had to go back, you know, with that new lens. So, yeah, you know, she was she was challenging for me as well in a lot of ways and it surprised me. Well, an important part of her story is that she is trying to decipher her mother's journal. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of symbolism. She realizes with the help of her friend Giselle that it's written in code. But her search for her mother ties into, I think, another theme of the book, which is that everyone in some form or another, seems to be cut off from the past. Mm. And even everyone on the ship seems to be cut off from the past. They, they, their origin is shrouded somewhat in mystery. It goes back more than 300 years, and they launch from a planet that they think of as the great life house. But there's a lot of mythology around it and religion around it. They think God is driving the ship, but but we know, and Aster knows that it's a spaceship on autopilot, basically. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, you know, the surgeon, who is another important character, and we could talk about him a little bit, but he also doesn't know who his mother is. Mm -hmm. So everyone has sort of a big picture cut off from history, and many of them also have a more immediate cut off from their past. And, and I wonder, what's the consequence for all of them of not really being in touch or having access to their both personal history and their kind of national history as human beings. That is absolutely spot on, um, everything you've just said and those connections that you drew. Uh, the consequence, I think, is alienation, isolation, not really feeling like a person or who you are, or like something is missing from you, something really important is missing, and if you knew it, you could figure out. And uh, I was drawing there from... I was thinking specifically about sort of the African diaspora um, and sort of being cut off from, you know, having lost so much of their history and identity and the sort of specific ethnic groups and peoples and nations and stuff over sort of the course of uh, the, the, the Middle Passage and what that looks like and sort of what kind of hole that leaves and... It was very much inspired by the very sort of interesting sort of diasporic religions we get, whether they're sort of African-based or many sort of different spins on uh, Christianity and Islam that happen, for example, in the United States and how we sort of try to rebuild that history from, from nothing and often invent something just to have something there. Um, and I think that's also true for many other people uh, in other diasporas and can resonate with immigrants in general. And yeah, just that feeling of being cut off. And there's really no way to, there's no book that you can look in or anybody that you can ask. Um, it's just, there's a black hole there uh, and that's it. And you've, you've got to deal with it. In the very original version of Unkindness of Ghosts, the, the Aster's quest, sort of finding out her mother, which I consider to be one of the core elements of the book and sort of absolutely the main plot didn't even exist. And I remember when I was writing the draft, oh, something's missing here. And yeah, there's a, an, a way that to bring that, that large story of disconnection from the past and history and to bring it down on a smaller scale because I think that also that also happens in in real life as well that it, in, in in addition to the big story there's um I and many people are living in very sort of insecure families and are cut off in that way too so it's I think it's traumatic I really do um and I think a lot of people spend their lives sort of searching. And even if it's not a main priority, it's something in the back of their minds that can lead to a kind of depression. As you were speaking, I also thought that there's power in the stories that are told, whether they're true or not. And <laughs> the monarch, the sovereign, and the ruling class tells a story that basically justifies the oppression of the black and brown people, the lower deckers, 
saying this is God's will, and if you screw up or do something wrong, you're adding on more time to our journey to this fabled promised land that we're supposedly going to get to. So there's a myth there, but that's a story used to maintain power. And then in Astor's case, I was thinking her mother's journals have a story, too, that she needs to decipher, which is actually truth. There's truth in in what's there. And that gives Astor incredible power as she comes to understand what it means. Absolutely. Like, stories both harm and heal. Um, And then I also think in in Astor's case and other sort of the oppressed people on the ship's case is that not having a path also sort of leaves them free to uh, to create um, and make something new and build something from scratch, which we've seen happen, um, not just in the book, I mean. Um, so, no, yes, that's absolutely true. And a lot of the book was drawing on history um, in the same way that the the ruling classes and the, the sovereignty manipulate the facts and the story, or in their case, kind of completely make it up. It's the same way that, you know, religions have been used, you know, despite what the actual text may be, to to do the same thing to to many people. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, that's a good point. In the bio on your website, you describe yourself as a dyke, a butch, a femme, a root worker, there's a lot of other things you use, too. And you also say that you're firmly at home writing about life in the margins. So you've given some clues already in the course of the interview about where you are personally in some of your characters. But I thought it would be interesting to explore that a little more, where where you come through and your life experience comes through in this in the story. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. First of all, I would say a lot of my characters, there's some parts that are just shamelessly ripped from myself and not just myself, but people in my life and from my friends. A lot, a lot of it is, you know, the, the self I wish I was. And then there's the, the third section of completely, you know, pulled out of the sky. Um, but where I am, I think the character that I identify with the most uh, is probably Theo a bit, actually. Um, we haven't really talked about Theo, um, but I'll just say a bit about him, if that's okay. Absolutely. No, of course. And that was the surgeon, the surgeon I mentioned earlier. But yes, he's an important character, so definitely. Yeah, so most simply, he is an upper-decker. He is a sort of a, a famed doctor on the ship. He's very, very respected and almost given a kind of holy status among the um, among the upper deckers. Um, but he's also sort of uh, living a life of a lot of hiding um, and concealing. And he's, I think, he struggles immensely with so much. And I think every day he's one of those types of people who has a kind of philosophical existential anxiousness that's driving him uh, a question about sort of how to live and how to do right and how to be. 
um, that I really, really relate with uh, or relate to. And I've he straddles different worlds for various reasons. Um, he's very close to Asta, for example, who's a lower decker, just to give you sort of a hint about that. But um, And I've, I've often felt like I've straddled worlds. I moved around a whole bunch growing up. Um, I spent, you know, my life split between sort of inner city public schools and private schools, many of which were really... Um, religious conservative uh uh like christian baptist schools um and you know i've lived in a sort of crowded house with my grandmother and i've lived in sort of a middle class white suburb and sort of all of those different things where you know you kind of have your feet in multiple ponds so um i think that's where i'm with Esther, I think almost all of the main characters, uh, gender non-conforming or not straight in some way. So yeah, surprise, surprise, I am those things. Um, so there's that. And then something else is that comes across in, in my characters is disability. Um, I, Theo, for example, uh, he, he had or has, I guess, post-polio syndrome um, and uh, had a partial leg amputation um, that, and he has chronic pain, basically. Um, and I, I, I don't have um, a leg amputation, but I am diabetic and it's with, uh, with history of um, having a really, really hard time controlling my sugars. So it's something I think about a lot. Um, I also have chronic pain. Um, so there I am. And then sort of the other side of that is disabilities from sort of mental illnesses or uh, developmental disabilities um, or neurodivergence, sort of kind of however you want to refer to those things um, where I also am. Um um, as I, I live, I mean, writers now, I feel like live very public lives. You know, we're all on Twitter, lots of us are. And I personally find it really, really difficult to modulate how much of myself I'm supposed to put out there. Um, I'm kind of an oversharer by nature. Um, I like to talk, I like to run my mouth, as you can probably tell by listening to this interview, all of my answers are really, really long. And fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I I never know what you know what's kosher to share. Yeah. So I I think I'll I'll pause there and just say yes. I am in I I am represented in those things generally. So yeah. Well, then maybe you're a little like Aster, who doesn't always say what might be considered by the majority the most appropriate thing to say in the moment. <laughs> But it's but it's always wise what she says, and so far in this interview, everything you've said is very wise. <laughs> I'm so glad. Good, good. That's what I strive for. So, one thing that comes to mind as you were speaking is that perhaps you and your characters, especially the lower deckers, are used to being in different social environments. 
unlike the upper deckers, and I imagine unlike people who have not experienced any kind of oppression or extreme hardship, who think this is how the world is and isn't it great? People who come from a <laughs> more oppressed place are often experienced in traveling across town to the richer part of town, and they know that there's different expectations of behavior. And you see that in your characters. Uh, Amy, who is mm-hmm. um, Amy Melusine, I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right. You are, that's perfect. So she is Aster's, she helped raise Aster, you know, since Aster's mother wasn't around. And she also works sometimes as a nanny or caretaker for white employers taking care of their kids. And it looks like those employers think, oh, what a lovely, loving woman she is. But when we're inside her head, we're like, yeah, this is like a, a job and it's better being on the field. But I don't care about these kids. And why should I care about these kids? And so that's just another thought I had as you talked about having traveled around the world, the country in different kinds of schools, in different kinds of neighborhoods. That gives you a special perspective. Yeah, no, I agree. Like the the phrase code switching kind of comes to mind. Um, yeah, there's definitely, that's a huge element of the book. And um, I think that they also, even though I talked about before how there's a lot of them are separate, separated each other, from each other because of language, um, I think it would also be more likely that they know more languages um, that are apparent on the ship than Upper Deckers would, as an example. So, yeah, absolutely, I agree. Well, speaking of language, I thought I'd make a note that you make up all kinds of great words that really sound like they should be words. I was thinking, I hope some of these <laughs> enter the language because even I, well, I have a Kindle, so it's very easy to look things up. And I was constantly going, oh, is that a real word? That sounds like a word, like astromatic, <laughs> like, like it should be a word. Yeah. I, I think some words in science fiction sound like, Uh, self-consciously like I mean it just doesn't it sounds made up and yours sounded like they came from you know their Latin origin and their Teutonic root I mean it just kind of worked you know so I don't know how you did that thank yeah thank you no that's uh, a big compliment I mean I do think a lot of it was just you know the kid in me um I just you know like making up words and uh I think that a lot of fantasy sci-fi authors are the same in that regard um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I studied lots of languages, so maybe that's something, um, that, that helps a lot. I remember when I was a kid, um, when I heard that in Russia, astronauts were called cosmonauts, I just like flipped out. I was like, that is so cool. Uh, how do I get in on this? Um, so Um, I've studied sort of Russian, Hebrew, Yiddish, uh, Greek, and Latin, um, and maybe that's something that comes out a bit um, in the book a little bit, uh, my love of languages. Um, And then also, I think, first and foremost, I do think of, like, how the words sound. Astromatics is definitely one of my favorite creations in the book. Um, You know, mathematics is a beautiful word, but addicts, it's, it's... it just really flows off the tongue and it sounds very like, oh yeah, somebody studies mathematics, they're hardcore. So um, yeah, that's kind of where astromatics came from. And it, it, it was a mix of just, 
you know, what sounded nice to my ears and um, basing them off sort of words that we use every day and sort of mixing them with various roots from various languages. Well, I hope they enter the English language. I'm not sure how that actually happens, how a word does that, but <laughs> I guess other people should just have to just start using it. So science fiction writers, let's all of us start using using astromatics and <laughs> some of the other amazing words from River Solomon. So I, I guess my last question is a question I it, often a lot of interviews end with, which is, you know, what's next? And in particular, an unkindness of ghosts, it's a self-contained story. It's a, it's a, as a freestanding book, but I read somewhere that you've been thinking about writing more about these characters. And I wonder, yeah. does that mean a sequel might be in the works? Oh my gosh, there's so much happening right now. And I'm not allowed to talk about so much of it yet. Um, even in the time between this conversation that we're having and when this air, when this airs, uh, stuff will be out there sort of in the world, but I can't say that much right now. As far as specifically regarding an unkindness of ghosts, I would love for there to be a sequel. Um, and I've sort of spent some time thinking about that and outlining that um, and talking about it uh, with my agent, um, etc. before an unkindness even came out. Um, but right now I am really, really focused on a lot of other projects so um, if it does happen, it's it it would not be for some time. So, um, but yeah, look out for other stuff. Uh, you know, is it what do they always say on certain things? Watch this space. Um, um, with this space being Twitter, I guess is probably where a lot of the news happens. So yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'm dying to know what it is, but you're in a non-disclosure situation, so we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really have enjoyed uh, talking with you. Yeah, no, this was absolutely great. Thank you so much. I've been talking with Rivers Solomon about An Unkindness of Ghosts, published by Akashic Books. I invite you to subscribe to New Books and Science Fiction on your preferred podcasting app and leave a review and tell your friends about the show. Your reviews and support help new listeners find us. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Thanks for taking the time to listen.